Hello and welcome to our podcast for the Holocaust Educational Trust. I'm Barnabas and I'm joined here with Molly Liggett. We are both regional ambassadors for the Holocaust Educational Trust and we're going to be talking today about misconceptions of the Holocaust and people's experience of Holocaust education at school. First of all, we'll introduce our panellists today. We have four guests from right across the United Kingdom in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. First of all, we've got Eloise. Hi, I'm Eloise Bishop. I went to school school at Newstedwood School in South London and I am now a history student at the University of Glasgow. Thank you. Um, moving from England up to Scotland again, Kirsty. Hi, my name is Kirsty Robson. I went to Barhead High School in East Renfrewshire, Glasgow. I'm now studying politics and social policy and sociology at the University of the West of Scotland and I work in Holocaust education. Thank you. And we'll now jump across the sea a bit to Northern Ireland where we have Lucy. Hi, I'm Lucy Bryan. I go to Borderline College in Borderline, Northern Ireland and I'm studying history and GCSEs and continuing it to my levels. Thank you, Lucy. And then jumping across the water again, we head to Wales with our final panellist, Ed. Hi, I'm Ed Jones. I went to school in South Wales, in a school called Rougemont School. Um, now I'm studying history in my final year at the University of Oxford. Thank you, Ed. And joining me to chair this event, we've also got Molly. Hi, my name is Molly. I'm a regional ambassador for the Holocaust Educational Trust, and I'm studying history and politics at Queen's. And I also went to Portadown College, where Lucy's at at the minute. Fantastic. So to kick off our discussion today, it'd be really interesting to hear from people what was the first time that you heard about the Holocaust? Initially, my first experience hearing about the Holocaust would have been from school, mainly primary school, but we never really went in depth about it. We were always told you'll learn more about it later on. I think for me, the first experience academically of learning about the Holocaust was around the age of 10 or 11 in my last year of primary school. But I had been exposed to that education from about seven years old, having a family that includes history teachers and avid readers and librarians. So it was always something I'd been very open to discussing. But academically, I think I was in my last year of primary school. So around the kind of 11 mark. I think it's a similar thing for me. Um... I can't remember exactly when it came up in school, but I remember it kind of being or existing in the background in kind of my late sort of primary school. My first real introduction to the Holocaust as it was taught in a lesson came from actually my religious studies teacher. I remember the assignment actually, and it's worth saying this actually, because very sadly, um, wonderful teacher, uh, Judith Harris, her name was, she passed away a couple of weeks ago. She set an assignment to us on write something on prejudice or uh, racism, something like that. You know, it was a very open assignment, which is quite unusual, I think, for kind of early secondary school. And that was the thing I chose to write about. And then sort of from there, I remember it kind of being in the curriculum. I remember having assemblies about it. So it was kind of slightly present sort of throughout, I, I guess, the ages of 10 to about 14-ish. Yeah, I definitely first learned about the Holocaust, I think, at home. And talking to my dad, we always discussed history a lot. And then I think at school, it was about the same time as most young people in year nine in England, which is about the age of 13, 14. Thank you so much, um, everyone. So um, moving on to just our next question then. How do you perceive Hitler's role in the Holocaust in relation to Nazis and the broader German public? I believe Hitler's role in Nazism and the Holocaust was very vital. However, I don't believe that all of the blame can be shifted on him from my studies. As in class, my history teacher would 
she used an example. She told one of my classmates, Sophie, I want you to push this person down the stairs because I don't like them. Sophie argued back, that isn't fair on me, but I have to do it because I have no other choice because you have the higher power. But what my teacher, Mrs. Cohen, was trying to get at was, but if enough people tried to get against tried to get against my idea then could you not overthrow my power however my classroom continued to argue back with you having the higher power you will have more control over us and we won't get much say in it I remember a, a really good discussion at you know aged 11 with my primary seven teacher discussing the concept of bystanders in relation to those who perpetrate atrocity which Looking back, it's quite like an interesting debate for 10-year-olds to be having. But I remember it being exceptionally interesting and hearing some really unique perspectives. And there are things that have stuck with me to this day because it shapes, I think that age group in particular, it kind of shapes how you then go on to learn and how you adapt knowledge, you know, as your progression in this kind of education goes on. Um, and we didn't ever really go into details about you know at that stage names of perpetrators we sort of had these rough ideas of who they potentially were but we looked more into the idea of how these things were allowed to happen rather than who let them happen which I always thought was a really interesting way of approaching that topic because it stops people looking at individuals like Hitler or Nazis in particular as individual monsters and more as human beings who made choices I was always really conscious that that was that's something that shaped how I learned from 10 onwards I think we had a something we had something very similar really in that we spend a lot of time talking about the life of Adolf Hitler right and maybe not enough time sort of talking about the system uh, the systems that permitted uh, the, the Holocaust to take place you know uh, the thing that sort of I, I guess we'll discuss this later but, but the thing that's really extraordinary to me about this genocide is how sort of how transnational it was, the kind of infrastructure that was required to make it happen. Um, and I realize these are discussions that kind of in history, or kind of in the public discourse, we've only recently sort of started having to a certain extent, I think. You look at uh, sort of the Netherlands where sort of the railway company has been kind of recently forced to kind of take some responsibility for its role in permitting all of that. But I think, you know, certainly it's quite, I think it's quite easy really to talk about Hitler. It's, it, it's not particularly, it, it's more of a challenge, I think, to talk about the the bigger picture in many ways. I completely agree when, you know, I studied it in school, it was very much focused on Hitler. And I think that's partly because we were studying it very much in a, as like a subsection of learning about World War II and kind of broader aspects of that era. Um, but I think as well, when we studied the Holocaust, we were much more focused on victims rather than persecutors and bystanders. So I think that was a lot of the reason for why we kind of never really spoke about the broader concepts of who committed these crimes. I think it was fascinating that Ed brought up this idea of the Holocaust being a transnational event, which, which leads me on to another question I wanted to ask of people, which is from your studies, where did the Holocaust happen? I think for, for me, I was I distinctly remember I was being given a map about, this was when I was in high school, possibly around 13-ish years old. And we were given a map that very clearly stated this is not just a one country thing. This is 
obscure and it, I, I just I remember this map and I really want to get a copy of it from somewhere I cannot find it and it had all of the places where there were transit camps very distinctly highlighted and then a second map that went on top of it that had concentration and extermination camps and then it had the transit lines and the transport links and then it had another layer that had all the like the, the statistics of victims and all the country names and it blacked out you know where things hadn't happened but it showed you the, the vast quantity of how this wasn't just you know happened in European soil but it's not necessarily a European issue and then it, you, you know it also then included it really brought home the idea that this actually happened in the UK as well you know in, in, the, in the Channel Islands which I remember a lot of my my friends at school being shocked at because you know you think about this as a very European thing and whilst we are very much part of Europe you sometimes forget that it is something that extends out to Britain and further across the world so I think I had the benefit of of teachers who really wanted to show the scale and the the vast amount and the the vast differences in the lives that were lost. Exactly I think again I have to be slightly critical I wonder if I'm being maybe too critical Um, but certainly at GCSE level I remember being taught that of course, perhaps not wrong to a certain extent, but there's a real focus on the camps. Um, now, of course, we know that the Holocaust happened sort of more widely than that. Um, you know, it, it begins in many cases with the, with the ghettos, if you look at the, um, at the Baltic states, uh, it isn't really happening in camps at all. But there was a real focus, I think, especially on the pervasive symbol of Auschwitz-Birkenau as this sort of symbol um, of something which is very difficult to be um, condensed to a symbol, if that makes sense. But I think maybe within the scope of sort of the GCSE curriculum, that's the best that they could manage. I, 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 maybe that's too critical, as I say, but it was only later on, you know, in A-level French that we started to talk about uh, Valdiv and the deportation camps and Torncy and all of that. And I think in A-level history, there was a similar kind of, and now we can look more widely. We're not, we're not so constrained. But again, that was later on and there were three people in my A-level French class, so I think there are certainly gaps there from late, from earlier in the um, earlier in the secondary curriculum, as as I understood that. Thank you. So, who do you then believe, or what do you remember from school being taught of the victims of the Holocaust, and why were they persecuted? Well, the victims were obviously the minority groups in Germany who never didn't fit Hitler's perfect profile, the Aryan race. You know, we didn't have a job, unemployed, uh, prostitution, anything like that, or an alcoholic. But at the same time, the victims were also the people in the towns and villages who seen everything going on. They may, they may have helped in some way. Like our history teacher told us stories about the people who lived in the towns leaving food out for people who were in the ghettos or people who came out from working in the concentration camps. But at the same time, if they were told to stand up for whoever, they could have been persecuted and rightfully sent into those concentration camps for helping. I think we had a similar focus. I mean, we, again, was very fortunate to have some really fantastic teachers who wanted to show the, the sort of spread of individuals who were targeted and persecuted. And we used, I believe we used Het's Mosaic Project um or at least it was a version of that um and then I remember using it years later that really shows the sort of spread of people who were targeted but then also rehumanizes each one of those groups and doesn't just reduce them to a set of characteristics which I think is a problem that lies in a lot of 
Holocaust education um, is that in some circumstances issues are reduced to sort of individual characteristics and statistics but don't use the human element which is, is why I think a lot of people are not aware that there were so many groups because the statistics you hear are very sort of normalized of you know six million or 1.1 million you know these are numbers that we recognize but we don't necessarily delve into the other groups so I'm, I'm very grateful to have been in an, in an education setting where all of those groups were discussed. I come back from that whenever I talk to my friends about history and my history classes all they know is about the six million Jews who died they don't really know about any of the other minority groups whenever you start to talk about the Holocaust especially in my age group not a lot of people are as educated as me who who don't do GCSE history or anything like that. All they know is Hitler was the main perpetrator and the Jews were the victims and that's all. That's kind of like the one area where my school were quite good in that they made sure that we understood that different groups were persecuted. I remember doing like worksheets exploring different victims of persecution. Thank you. Gonna look a bit more broadly now. If I were to use the word anti-Semitism, what does that mean to you? I think for me, anti-Semitism is something I've always been very conscious of. Growing up in East Renfrewshire, um, East Renfrewshire houses the largest Jewish community in Scotland. So anti-Semitism was never something that I wasn't aware of, not necessarily personally, but it was definitely discussions that were had at a young age. I remember visiting some of the local synagogues while I was in primary school. So, you know, it was an issue that I remember being not necessarily at the forefront of social education in school but it was definitely something that was brought up a lot and having then gone on to work for the Jewish community in East Renfrewshire and in Glasgow and then on a wider scale working in Holocaust education anti-semitism is something that has unfortunately followed me around a little bit and especially in the context of Holocaust education people seem to link a lot of things unnecessarily and that results in abuse in anti-Semitic ways online and in person, which sometimes is a massive hindrance to effective Holocaust education because you have to then start debunking 8,000 myths on the side before you can get to the point of an argument. But I also think there is scope in that circumstance to use it as a bit of a, a bounce board for education because you can go and debunk these theories and then quite often it will unearth little bits of Holocaust denial or you know anti-Zionism or even just deeper anti-Semitism. But it does give you scope to then use that as a, well, let me tell you why this is incorrect and use it as a tool for education. Anti-Semitism was introduced to us, um, again, in a religious studies context, I think. I think it must have been compulsory until about year nine. But really, it should have been, I think, sort of hammered home to us quite a bit earlier. And the reason I say that is because I'm from South East Wales. Um, South East Wales, actually, the time where my... Uh, my grandmother was from Tredegar, um, actually had anti-Jewish riots in 1911. So there's a long history of anti-Semitism, sort of where I'm from. And it's not well enough addressed, I don't think. Um, I, I, I think often it's kind of slightly shied away from as something, as, as, as something to discuss. Now, I think that did change later in my school. I think sort of looking at the Holocaust in greater detail uh, in in my A-levels, you know, that, that, that changed things. I think there was uh, more of a discussion on anti-Semitism there and also in, in my French lessons as well. But I think that was something which was relatively new, actually. I left school in 20, 2018, and I think these sort of discourses on anti-Semitism, there's something relatively novel there, but they haven't really been, been around so long, actually. 
anti-Semitism, I've known about it for a long time, but it was something I've, you know, really had to contend with at school where when we had all the issues in the Labour Party and I was saying that, you know, this isn't right, I had a lot of people saying, kind of acting like it was a kind of second-class racism and that it didn't really matter. And, you know, that was something I was kind of constantly pushing back against for a very long time when I was at school with people just telling me to stop caring about them, that there were more issues that were more important. It was very frustrating kind of growing up in that environment, trying to talk about it, and people just didn't want to. Thanks so much, everyone. I just have one linking back to education and just um, picking up on what a few people have said. Do you think your school curriculum prepared you to be able to enter into discussions about anti-Semitism and maybe other genocides that you might know of? I think for me, taking a slightly more Scottish perspective, um, Holocaust education is not in the compulsory curriculum in Scottish education and the devolved education system. So I found, and having then gone on and done quite similar interviews to this with, with friends of mine at university and friends from across the country, Holocaust education in Scotland differs hugely school to school because it is down to whether the teachers and the educators in those schools really want to have an impact and whether they want to put time and effort into developing something that is beneficial to their pupils rather than just ticking a box um so for me my school have done incredible work in making sure holocaust education was effective it was you know a widespread of information it wasn't just half an hour in a history lesson with some statistics and a map I'm really grateful that I didn't have that, but I've got colleagues and friends from across the country who got shown the boy in the striped pyjamas and given a couple of numbers and then said, off you go, and that was their education. Whereas for me, I was really lucky to have a school where it spread across the curriculum, it spread both across the curriculum and across all of the classes. It's very interdisciplinary. And as I sort of progressed through my school's education system and I went, you know, from first year to sixth year, I kept sort of encouraging and helping out where I could in developing that level of education across the school board, across all of the classes. And like you, we had things in French, we had things in religious studies, we had things in history. And I took higher history in um, fifth year. So I did a, a unit on appeasement in Germany. And my history teacher did then go a little bit off curriculum and then go into some other stuff that we didn't necessarily need to know for the exams, but were, was beneficial in the context to start understanding. But my, you know, my, my friends who didn't take social sciences or history weren't excluded from that information because it was included in many other aspects of our school life so I think it raises the question of whether compulsory holocaust education is necessarily always the most beneficial thing because sometimes it doesn't give educators scope to go off and develop something that they think is beneficial to the people in front of them I know we looked at testimony from survivors that were incredibly local to us like ones that lived 10 minutes away and we had them come in and speak to us that's not possible for everybody but for us, it meant that the, the education we received was immersive and it was fantastic because we were really put in a position where we had to learn about these things locally because of our sort of shared history. I think Kirsty said something there which sort of hammers on really what I've been trying to emphasize through this, this half hour. You know, it has to be interdisciplinary. I think that's the most sort of important thing with genocide education. And I think it, it, it can sit alongside the curriculum as well. We had... Uh, Siggy Shipper come in and speak to us twice, I think, in the time that I was in school. That was such a phenomenal thing, I think, for, for students to listen to. Everyone got something out of that. And even if it's a webcast, even if it's a recording, I think that's really important. Um, I remember we had a history teacher who did a yearly Holocaust educational, a yearly assembly, excuse me, on, 
on the Holocaust. And from there, I think that could be a springboard into discussions about other genocides. Having done lessons from Auschwitz, I was able to go back to the given presentation and say, okay, and then from there, we can talk about, uh, we can talk about the Armenian genocide. Uh, we can talk about, uh, this was 2017, I suppose. So we can talk about the Rohingya genocide and, you know, we can say, okay, these are very different events because every genocide has a very different character. But talking about the Holocaust, I think, kind of paved the way to having those discussions, which I think is so, so important um, if we're to derive anything out of Holocaust education for the modern world. My history teacher this year has completely opened a new chapter for us all. She has went off the curriculum slightly, but only to tell us stories and real life events that have happened. She's put so many sources into our work and is helping us to actually understand what has been happening and to give us so many figures. And even she posted a live video with hundreds of people from the UK where a Holocaust survivor was being interviewed on her time or during the time of which she was persecuted in Germany and soon travelled to the UK to escape the horribleness of the Nazis. But the sources that we've been given have really opened our eyes to what Nazism, anti-Semitism, everything that has happened to help me understand a great deal better, even though I'm only two years into my course. You mentioned something really interesting there, which is that your, you know, your teacher went off the curriculum to then incorporate all these personal histories. I was wondering, what are people's experiences of hearing survivor testimonies or listening to life stories and incorporating those as part of your education? I think for me, survivor testimony has always been a massive part of this kind of education. I also think it's it's a fundamentally vital part of this kind of education. You know, I think I've already discussed the concept of, of rehumanization and making these numbers matter in a context of somebody standing in front of you. I think I was 16 when I first, you know, stood next to a survivor and heard her tell her testimony. That was Eva Clark. And then from that, it almost became a little bit of an addiction, trying to meet as many as I could and have those experiences with as many people as I could. The survivors I, I have worked most closely with, um, happened to be quite local to me which meant that they were able to visit the school that I attended quite a few times they became frequent visitors um which was Henry and Ingrid Wooga and Henry and Ingrid both came to first England and Scotland via the kinder transport Henry was interned on the Isle of Man for being an enemy alien category and they've dedicated their entire lives to educating our community Scotland the UK I know Henry spent years going back to Germany to lecture and do things as well. So they lived about 10 minutes away from our school. So they were quite frequent visitors. And we sadly, um, Ingrid passed away last year after nearly 75 years of marriage to Henry and changing hundreds of thousands of lives every year. But it really kind of brought home that aspect of why this is so important was because, well, this is Henry and Ingrid and they live one town over. And this is their lived experience of being targeted and subject to discrimination, prejudice, persecution, their families having horrific things happen to them. And I think that that's a very important aspect for me is it, having somebody stood in front of you telling these stories will always be more heartbreaking and empowering, essentially, because you're you're doing this and you be, we always use the phrase you become a witness and I made sure to get Henry and Ingrid and another survivor, um, Judith Rosenberg, who also lived not far away. And she also passed away last year. She was the last Auschwitz survivor in Scotland. I made sure that these people were 
put in front of assembly halls filled with school pupils as much as I could because in reality that is the way that you can strengthen people's bond with this kind of education is allowing them to meet and be faced with the reality of what can happen when fate goes unchecked. I think that's fundamentally one of the most important things and I, I didn't really as much as I was very conscious of that the reality of this didn't hugely hit me until so I first met Henry and Ingrid when I was 16 so 2016 and then in 2019 I went to the Glasgow Jewish Community's Yom HaShoah event, the Jewish Holocaust Memorial event in May. And part of that event included a presentation where the names of the family of the Jewish community that we were with were listed on a on a presentation alongside music. And we had you know, moments of contemplation to it. And it wasn't until then when I suddenly realised just how many connections there were just in a room in a synagogue of people that I would go on to work with and become friends with and just see the extent to which that this is an issue that is felt right on our doorsteps. And I think that's why survivor testimony in particular is very important, not just necessarily survivor testimony, but looking at lived experience and then that sort of generational trauma thing. Because for me, it's the fact that I have friends who are my age who have that connection through their great grandparents, for example. It's being put in front of people who this has happened to or it's happened to their families. And it really helps you make something about more than just the statistics and more than just about the numbers. Thanks so much. Um, I'm just going to wrap up to say thank you all so much for joining us. It was so interesting as well to listen to four different perspectives from right across the UK. And um, it's interesting to hear Kirsty how survivors' testimonies have helped shape some of the work that you've been doing. And it's great to see as well, Lucy, only starting out um, at History at GCSE that you've still got to hear a survivor testimony, even though that is online. That's fantastic. That's still able to continue, as I believe that that's something that's so important.